this time last year, I was, as most of you know, recovering from COVID myself. And like many of you, because of the shutdown, I had plenty of time to binge watch. And so I actually watched the show, uh, well, the 30 by 30 special on Michael Jordan. Some of you have seen that ESPN put it out. And uh, it was fascinating because, you know, I grew up in an era where Michael Jordan was the man in basketball, pro basketball. I mean, there's no one, even to this day, I know LeBron says he's the king, but I don't know. Michael Jordan was sort of like the man. And uh, over five hours, I learned more about Michael Jordan in that biopic, you know, than, than I had known in a lifetime up until that point, right? And, and, and I mention that because, in, in a sense, if you think about it, the series that we're doing right now, called Portrait of Jesus, is a biopic. And what we're doing is we, we want to kind of fill in the gaps of, of maybe some things that we've either forgotten about or perhaps have never known about Jesus. And here why, here's why that's so important. Because for Christians, Jesus Christ is the center of our everything. Now, if you wanted to pursue Islam, you don't really need to know the founder, Muhammad. If you wanted to pursue Buddhism, you don't really need to know Buddha. Uh, and that's true about any faith system, any religion, apart from Christianity. You don't actually need to know the person that's essentially designed it in order to follow it as a religion. But in Christianity, if you don't know Jesus, you don't know Christianity. Jesus isn't simply the one who teaches the way. He says he is the way. And right here in our passage, this morning, I am the resurrection. And this morning in particular, what I want us to see is the import of his sorrow. And I want to say this to all of us this morning. I want to commend to you the tears of Jesus and suggest that you can't actually know Jesus Christ as he's intended to be known unless you know his sorrow, unless you know his actual tears. And so this morning, my hope is that we will be confronted in a good way with his tears, with his sorrow, so that we might engage our faith that much more deeply. To that end, three things this morning to get us there. First, we need to look at the presence of his tears. Second, the meaning of his tears. And then finally, his response to our tears, also our response. First, the presence here. I realize that uh, we're picking up the story about halfway, the Lazarus story and the resurrection. The first 16 verses prior to the reading of this morning's text was the story about Lazarus being sick. And Jesus is not in Bethany, a town two miles outside of Jerusalem. He's far away, and so a messenger is sent to find Jesus and say, Jesus, the one that you love, because Lazarus and his sisters Martha and Mary were loved deeply as friends by Jesus. Jesus, come quickly. But what does Jesus do? If you know the story, he doesn't come quickly. He tarries. And, and so we should be asking this question this morning as an introduction to our text this morning, and that's this. Why does he tarry? Could he have healed from a distance, for instance? The answer is, yes, he could have. Everything that we know about Jesus already in the series would point in that direction. If you've read John's Gospel, or for that matter, any of the Gospels, you know that he's already done many miraculous healings. He could have easily have healed from a distance, so why doesn't he? And I think the answer to that question is more important than you realize. It's because... Jesus has something for Martha and Mary in particular that could not happen from a distance. It can only happen in relationship. Did you notice in the text this morning, Martha and Mary say the exact same thing to Jesus. Jesus, if you had been here, Lazarus would be alive. Did you catch that? They said the exact same thing, but the response from Jesus 
is different. With Martha, what does he give her? He gives her, I am the resurrection. He gives her his divinity. But when Mary crumples into a ball of tears, how does Jesus respond? With his own weeping. His humanity. Jesus Christ, being fully God and fully man, what we see here in this passage is that those two things come together. Here's why that's so important. This morning, you know, it's so important that we receive that which it is that we need. Hirsch and I were trained as counselors before uh, we became pastors. Mike is just finishing some training in that arena as well. And all three of us and will say that as pastors in training around counseling, that one of the things that you learn on day one is that, that you want to properly give the individual that you're meeting what they actually need. And so sometimes it's a confrontation. That's actually what's needed. Other times, it's, it's tears. It's sympathy. It's sorrow in that sense. And if you give someone that needs confrontation tears when they need confrontation, they're not receiving the, the love that they need and vice versa. If you give confrontation to someone that, that's in a place where they need empathy, where they need tears, you miss their heart. Jesus Christ knows exactly what you need this morning. He knows exactly where you're at and what it is that you need. And through the work of his Holy Spirit, he gives us. So the very first thing I want to see, even before we get to the tears of Jesus, is his presence here and how it is that he's present both with these people but also with us in our situation. Now, to get there, though, I want us to see two things about his presence. First, how personal he is. Look again with me at verses 23 through 25. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha was a very faithful Jew. What that meant was that she believed in a generic end of end of uh, end of the world sort of uh, resurrection of all the righteous out of the earth that's what that's what jewish people believe but what jesus says is you don't have to wait there's a resurrection that's coming that's 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 happening in me i am the resurrection the first thing i want to see here is that is that that jesus is saying that our faith is intended to be personal christianity is constantly pushing you so your faith is constantly pushing you towards God in the personal. Here's why that's so important this morning. Remember what I just said about religions. All religions have this in common. You can figure out salvation on your own. All you need is a blueprint. All you need is a map. All you need are the instructions, and then it's up to you to find salvation, to find nirvana, to find paradise, and so forth. And the whole time in religion, you're doing the Heisman stance with God. You're keeping him at a distance. But what Christianity does, it says, no, I must come near to you. Simone Weil was a early 20th century. She lived a very short life, unfortunately, only about 40 years. But she was a philosopher, a French philosopher, an activist. Uh, she was very politically to the left and very secular. She grew up in a secular French home. And in that home, she knew nothing of religion. She knew nothing of faith. But she had a very different trajectory from many of her friends and colleagues in her activism. And she drifted towards faith. And she wrote a letter one time to a friend of hers in the early 1940s, shortly before her death, about her conversion. And there was a British poet named George Herbert who had written a lovely poem called Love about Christian faith. And listen to what she said 
in a book called Waiting for God. Listen to what she said or in this letter. Listen to what she said. In 1938, I was suffering from splitting headaches. Each sound hurt me like a blow. I discovered the poem called Love. I learned it by heart. Often at the culminating point of a violent headache, I make myself say it over, concentrating all my attention upon it and clinging with all my soul to the tenderness it enshrines. I used to think I was merely reciting it as a beautiful poem. But without my knowing it, the recitation had the virtue of a prayer. It was during one of these recitations that, as I told you, Christ himself came down and took possession of me. In my arguments about the insolubility of the problem of God, I never foreseen the possibility of that, of a real contact, person to person, here below, between a human being and God. What is Simone saying? She's saying, I, I thought my, my problem with God as I was drifting towards faith was an intellectual one. That, that's the insolubility of the problem of God. How can there be a God in light of the suffering of the world? And she realized in the midst of all that that what she needed was Jesus himself. And Jesus was the one who came and moved into her life, took possession of her, you see. That's the heart of the faith. The heart of the faith is to, to know Jesus so that we might be pushed into, to be possessed by Christ himself, as Will said. How different is that from religion? But is it just that, that Jesus says, I, you know, I am the resurrection. It's not just I'm pointing to a resurrection. I am making it personal. I want you to see his humanity here too. This is where we're going to spend most of our time, the remaining time, verses 33 through 35. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in the spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Now, we're going to really dive into that here in a second. What does that mean? His anger and his tears, really angry tears, we're going to see. But before we get there, the first thing I want you to see, let's not miss the forest for the trees here. Look at his humanity. In, in some senses, anger and sadness represent the range of all emotions of the human experience, don't they? I mean, just to, to that, and, and when you look at the Gospels as a whole, the portrait of Jesus, what do you see? You actually see all the gamut, all the range of emotions on display. The anger, the sorrow, the joy, everything in between. You see all this on display. And what Jesus is showing us, what John is showing us about Jesus, is that we see both his, his indignation here, but also his tenderness. At the exact same time, in essence, in the, in the same story, we see the fury of God, and we see the soft, merciful tears of God, you see. This is why John begins his, his gospel. In the, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, the Word became flesh. What does it mean that Jesus Christ, God, the Word, the living Word, became flesh? I think one of the challenges for me, I'll, I'll just say this is so true for my own life, and, and my guess is it could be true for a lot of you, is that we are made uncomfortable by a God who would weep violently for us. There's a sense that we're more comfortable with a two-dimensional picture of God, of, of one who's distant and who heals from a distance, who offers salvation. And we, in our theology, in our minds, we respond to that. And that certainly is part of it. 
But this is not that Jesus. This is a Jesus that would draw near to us in our moment of suffering. I mentioned several weeks ago that Kirsten and I uh, were, have been watching uh, the series The Crown. And, and one of the things that, as we've come to the end of that, one of the things that we've realized is that, that much of that show is actually about relationships. I mean, it really, it's, it's about marriage, it's about family. And there's a couple haunting scenes that we came across just a, a couple weeks ago, two weeks ago, in fact. One of them was a scene where Prince Charles, and again, I don't know how much of this is historically accurate, but there's this one scene where Prince Charles really confronts his mother, Queen Elizabeth. He's in college at this point. And, and Charles is, is angry and sad at the same time because, because his mother, the queen, has kept her distance. She's a very cold figure if you've seen the show at times. And, and Charles, in a moment of anger, turns around as he's about to leave the room and he says, he says Mom, he says, he says, why have you kept your distance from me? And Queen Elizabeth responds, I had to make sacrifices. In order to be the queen, I couldn't be your mother. And there's another scene, too, where, where at this point now Charles is married and, and he's having an affair with Camilla Parker Bowles. And, and so this very young Princess Diana runs to, to Queen Elizabeth and says, I need help with your son. Uh, he's, he's unfaithful. And, and, um, and she runs and she throws her arms around Queen Elizabeth. And if you've seen it, you know what it, she does. She, she just stands there stiff as a board. And she does not hug Diana back. It's just such a raw, painful scene to watch. This young child of 17, 18 years old, seeking in, in the queen a mother figure, and she cannot give that. In British monarchy, the king or the queen rules with a divine right. And what that show is communicating is that you can have only one or the other, the divine or the human. But don't you see, in Jesus Christ, he says, you don't have to choose. You get my divinity, but you also get my humanity. Isaiah, prophesying about the coming of the Messiah, says this in chapter 53, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. This is a God who comes close to us, Isaiah said. This is a Savior, this is the Messiah, who will get into our business out of empathy. N.T. Wright picks up on this in his commentary on this passage, and he says, Jesus doesn't sweep into the scene as we might have supposed, and as later Christians inventing such a story would almost certainly have told us, and declared that tears are besides the point, that Lazarus is not really dead, only asleep, even though, as his actions and words will shortly make clear, Jesus has no doubt what he will do and what his Father will do through him. There's no sense of triumphalism of someone coming in smugly with a secret formula that will show how clever he is. There is rather the man of sorrows, acquainted with her grief and pain, sharing and bearing it to the point of tears. Don't you see, friends? This is the God who is present with you right now. In your tears. In your sorrows. You actually believe that. You trust that. But that all leads to the second thing here. 
for me, this is where the penny dropped as I was preparing for this morning. And it's the meaning of his tomb. Two things I want you to see. We've already mentioned them in verses 33 to 35. First is anger. The word here for his anger. By the way, he's responding to the weeping that's going on here. And the word here for anger is the same word that's used of a, sometimes of a, back in the ancient times, of a horse that's bellowing. Oh, it's a deep welling snort, as it were. If you've ever seen a movie where there's a steed of war and there's a warrior on top of that, and they're about to leap into battle, and, and you see that, and you hear that snort from the horse, and you know that, that battle is about to rage, battle is about to happen. And that's the word here for the anger. It wasn't that Jesus was frustrated about something. And he wasn't angry at those who were weeping and wailing. He wasn't angry at the villagers. What was he so angry about that he was determined with a fury that he was going to deal with? Sin and death itself. When Lazarus was laying in the tomb, his first response was a determination that I will do something about Lazarus in the tomb. I will do something about death itself. I will do something about sin because it's such a violation of my creative order. It's such a violation of how I've designed this world. I will do something with a determination. I will do something. But it's one side of the coin because with his anger comes his sorrow. And it's in verse 35. Verse 35 Famously, is the shortest verse in all the scriptures. Two words. Jesus wept. But now we know that word Jesus is, but do we know the word wept? Because, it may surprise you to know this, it's not the same word for the weeping one verse before. The one verse before is sort of the wailing that happens at a graveside. I remember 16 years ago, there was a, a family that was going through a birthing class with us And and tragically, they lost their child in utero at birth. And we went to the funeral. And I'll never forget, or I went to the funeral, I'll never forget a three-foot casket coming out and listening to the wailing, not tears, not simply, but the wailing coming from this woman as her firstborn was laid in the grave. That's the word here in verse 33. That's what Jesus responds to with anger. But the word in verse 35 is a different word for grief. And here it is. It's looking forward to something. Literally, it means to look forward to a calamity to come. Don't you see? Jesus is angry at the violation of sin and death, but he weeps not simply for them in empathy, but it goes beyond that. And he looks forward to his own calamity. Don't you see? He cannot separate the tears of empathy and the anger and the fury, the violation of sin and death from his own doom to come. For he knows that the only way he can deal with that furious determination, with the violation of the God's creative order and sin and death, is through his own doom and calamity. And so it's lament. Jesus Christ in verse 35, when Jesus wept, is lamenting. In verse 36, it simply says this, so the Jews said, see how he loved them. And yet there's irony here because they could not see the fullness of why it is that he wept. He didn't simply love them as friends. He didn't simply 
engage with empathy as one human being to another. He was joining his humanity with his divinity by looking forward to the cross. There's a direct line between verse 35 and the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. Do you see how it's all brought together? I and the resurrection weeping. He knows that in order for him to be the resurrection, that he says to Martha, he must be the tears of calamity to them all. Jesus Christ isn't simply Christus Victor, the one who triumphs over sin and death, like watching a a movie from the past of of an ancient conqueror and saying, well done, well done. He is the wounded hero. He's the God who can be wounded. The great 20th century theologian Jürgen Moltmann, in a work called The Crucified God, points this out when he says, A God who cannot suffer is poorer than any human. For God who is incapable of suffering is a being who cannot be involved. Suffering and injustice do not affect him. And because he is so completely insensitive, he cannot be affected or shaken by anything. He cannot weep. For he has no tears. But the one who cannot suffer cannot love either. So he is also a loveless being. That's the love. Jesus Christ had to be a God of fury, but also a God of tears. Because he is a God of love. Don't you see two sides of the same coin brought together right here in this one passage? So, What does that mean for us? Lastly here, the response. How do we respond to this? First of all, know this. Right now, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, there's a place for your tears to continue. Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, said this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, which means death, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. What he's saying there is, don't. it's not that you don't grieve, it's that you grieve with hope. It's that you grieve in a different way. We've all watched those television shows, the movies, we all know the stories, we've gone to the funerals, we've gone to the gravesides, where there is no hope of salvation, at least from the vantage point of those who are there to grieve. And yet, it says to us that we are to grieve, yes, but we are to grieve with hope. And so, if you hear nothing else, please hear that, that the message that I think Christ has for us as followers of Jesus Christ this morning, is to be people who learn not just to grieve, but to grieve with hope, you see. And it's fascinating, this passage, they say to Jesus, Jesus, come and see. Where's Lazarus? Come and see. And how does Jesus respond? Come and see the resurrection. His tears, the calamity, I am the resurrection. Come and see. Come and see. I want to end here. Jim Jim prayed about it. Beautiful. It's been 13 months now. Well, for us, roughly that. For the world, even longer. For the pandemic. We firmly believe that there will be many tears to be shed on the other side of the pandemic. We carry in our own bodies trauma. And it's much like when you see that scene in the movie where, where the bad guy's been caught. And it's then when the tears come because there's a sigh of relief and yet there's still weeping to be done. I think that's true for us as a nation, as a people. 
as a global community. And even this past week, the violence rendering, cutting in two our people right here in the city of Atlanta, the fear within the Asian American community. You know, the grief of these families that have been forever changed by the work of an evil person. We must learn to grieve with hope. And what we can't do here is we can't go to either one of two extremes because this is what we do as Christians and this is what we do as a world. One extreme is stoicism. It's to say, chin up, everyone. It's going to be fine. Or it's to, it's to take out of context Romans chapter 8, 28. Right? God works to the good of all those you know, who know Him, who love Him, or are called according to His purpose. That's true. And yet sometimes we will take that out of context and say, you shouldn't be feeling the grief that you're feeling right now. Not true. Why do we know that? Because Jesus Himself wept. And so if your response this morning to either your own grief or someone else's grief is stoicism, you should wonder if you're even human. Jesus Himself could weep. Why can't you? I, 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 it's so hard for me to cry. I grew up in a home where I never saw my father weep. And, and I know that's part of my story. My tendency is towards stoicism. But it's also true that we can't swing the pendulum to the other side and become, not instead of stoics, but become cynics. And, and say, well, if, if God is who he says he is, then why is there weeping in the world? Why is he a God of inaction? And the response of Jesus is my action. I am the resurrection. That one day there'll be no more tears, no more sorrow. But until then, we grieve with hope. Here's what I think that does in the end for us as a church family, individually and collectively. I think that makes us more human. And in doing so properly, it allows us to enter into the pain and the suffering of others. Friends, you cannot enter well, at least, into the pain and the suffering of others until you've worked through your own pain and suffering, until you allow yourself to feel suffering, until you allow yourself to see that Jesus Christ wants to be there with you, present. He is the meaning of your suffering. He gives meaning to your suffering. Don't you see? This is the picture that allows us to be empathic with other people, Christian and non-Christian, to say, I know your pain, I feel your pain, I'm with you in your pain. Jesus Christ was not simply the model for that. He was the answer for that. He is the resurrection. He is the life. One day the promise is no more tears, no more sorrow. But until then, we work the future into our present. And so we grieve with a hope. We know how the story ends. And so may we be that church family that knows how to suffer, that knows how to grieve, but to grieve with hope. Let's pray. Father, you are a God of tears. You're not, as Wright said, a smug God, Christus Victor, who points to the victory parade only. You are a God who weeps, and I believe that you even weep now. That you wept for the victims of the shootings here in Atlanta. That you've wept for the victims of injustice. Of all sorts. All the isms of our world. That you weep. And that you weep for your church family. You weep for 
the global church that has experienced for centuries persecution. You weep for those who've lost loved ones. You are a God who weeps. But you're a God whose fury is satisfied at the cross. You're a God who, who can now give to us the, the embrace that we long for, that we're made for. Jesus, you are fully God. You're fully human. In this passage, we not only see that, we celebrate that. So Lord, help us to cling to you, to know truly who you are, to see your tears as they truly were, to see your greatness, your victory over sin and death, that we might live well today, that we might live in such a way as to point people to the true Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now we are going to respond to God's word through confession. And as we do, I want to give you a moment to, to start considering as God comes near, what is he pointing out? What is he allowing you to see? I want you to take a moment and, and just for personal reflection, what is God bringing up for you as, as Scott preaches the word? What is the Holy Spirit uh, pricking in your heart? And I'm going to give you a, a space here to do that now, and then I'll move us towards confession today.